Trevor, thank you. Hello, good morning. You are very welcome to the programme. Between now and nine, new science identifies why it's so hard to eradicate TB. Good food for humans going to cattle in Kerry as cheaper imports hit the shelves. And Ella McSweeney goes underground and back in time. Look at folks. All of the weather apps got it wrong yesterday. I was looking at each and every single one of them on my phone, even as the snow was tumbling down, and they were all confidently predicting rain, heavy rain, rain throughout the day, no mention of snow anywhere. So back off, Metair, and leave them alone. TB is at a 10-year high, with a nearly 25% jump in the number of animals testing positive last year. The TB eradication scheme is now costing the taxpayer €74 million a year, which is in itself a jump of nearly a third. But clearly it isn't doing the job if it is an eradication scheme. There is new science at hand this week, though, that shows what the main sources of infection are and what might be done to tackle that. I thought, though, that it was important to begin by looking at the human cost of this, the impact when a farmer has to completely depopulate his entire herd because of TB. John Bateman's herd suffered a serious outbreak recently. He's the ICMSA chairman in Limerick. And for the first time in his farming career, there are no cows to be found anywhere in his yard. Did you ever hear the sound of your own footsteps in this parlour before? No. Normally what you get in the the milking parlour is the rhythm of the milking machine and the pulsation and the odd cow shuffling. This time of the year you'd have calves bawling, you'd have a new calf almost every morning or it's in the larger farms you'd have multiple calves this time of the year. Um, that's what farming is about. The morning the cows went. I went up the fields to bring them down. I have never in my life felt such a Judas, knowing that, God forgive me, that they were going to be going to the factory, literally mass murder, that later on. Um, Explain that to me, though, because none of this was your fault. No, but, like, cows are different. They're your pals as such. You've been at their births. You were at their mother's births. You were at their granny's births. They're part of what you do. Did you feel that you had somehow failed these animals? Farmers are funny creatures. Their life's work is their stock and their farm. And the only thing that will surpass that is their family. Nothing else. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's strange. As, as a farmer, that's what your life is. Your stock, your farm. You stay up all night if there's a cow calving. You, you won't complain. Um, and then, God forbid, you lose the calf. You need to put that behind you and try and do better with the next one. Do you know, or if you lose an animal, um, if you do your best, it's no problem. If you feel you let the animal down, you'll be kicking yourself for for, for weeks after. Um, and, like, you won't win them all. There's an old saying that, like, where you've livestock, you'll have dead stock. And um, 
but as a farmer you try to do your best for your animals and loading them up in a truck to go to the factory is not one of those things. Um, I went to the GP there lately for my uh, checkup. He took my blood pressure at the end of it. He said, this guy, hi. We were talking about my de- depopulation. Mm-hmm. And he said, you need to check that. I've been checking it regularly since. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, and he says, it's probably what we've been chatting to. And I didn't think anything about it at the time. But um, it is quite stressful for your herd to be taken out, come out the following morning into the yard and um, the silence will kill you. Derelict. I had a few projects on while I'm out. One was to tidy hedges and do dikes, right? Almost a mental project to keep me going. When you go out, you have to power hose everything. Has it changed your sense of who you are and what you do because you're not doing it any longer? Oh, completely. What it does is it kicks any ambition out of your guts. Your life's work. Oh, completely. Disappearing in the course. Overnight. Almost overnight. 24 hours. Yeah, almost overnight. I bought my farm. So everything you see is the sum of my life. You get knocked down, it's very hard to pick yourself up again. Like, I have, I have the joyous decision now to go back into cows or to go try and get a few cattle. Um, I don't see the point in going back into cows because there's still a huge outbreak of TB in my area. Two of my neighbours have gone down recently and they were tested clear after I was depopulated. So it would really only be a matter of time. I, I, I feel again. that, I feel it. And I feel um, I don't want to go through it again. You know, I, don't, I really don't you want You just to, don't have the heart for that. I don't have the heart. I'm, I'm gone too old for that. You know, you can get knocked down and you try and pick yourself okay. up, but it happens once too often. So this has knocked the stuffing out. Oh, completely, you, completely, completely. The, the, the original plan was to put in a few bullocks. And... Um, I had another option. A company came to me to know would I lease the farm for solar panels and that would be a very tempting option. My family, they're going up, they're going into jobs. There's nobody really interested in taking it on. And long term, I think the solar panels could be a very viable option for me. My original thing was to stay farming as long as I felt able and happy doing so and then lease the farm or sell it. Solar panels, even though new to me, would be a very... I'd have to have a really serious look at them. It would keep you here living in the place that you have an obvious attachment to. But it would answer the question as to what was your real attachment. Was it the farm or was it the herd? Um, It was probably the way of life. Um, The herd would be. But once that's gone, you have to have a real a real look of what you're doing yeah. and where you're going. Is it just a collection of fields without a herd in it? Um, it's more than that. Um, my predecessor, he gave me a map with the name of each field on it. And I still carry that on. And we'll say... And even with solar panels, those fields would still have the same oh name? Oh, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Um, 
when you came into the house there, you sat on my chair. Oh, God, I didn't realise. You did. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, if you go back and see it, then you look out the window and you look up at the fields. Yeah. Well, that's right? why I chose that seat. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. My own family wouldn't dream of sitting there now, right? Because they know Dad sits there. My dad at home years ago had a similar seat that looked out the window, right? It's so even if you were looking out on solar panels... i get used to it. <laughs> but you'd still be here in your seat looking out at your fields. I probably would, yeah, 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 yeah. John Bateman at home just outside Croom in Limerick. His is just one of the nearly 5% of all herds that suffered an outbreak last year. And you can hear the personal cost there. It's pretty obvious. Whenever someone suffers an outbreak, there are a lot of fingers of suspicion pointing in all directions, wildlife often getting the blame. But this week, some new science has emerged which shows at a national level what it is that's fueling the continuing herd breakdowns. Simon Moore is the Professor of Veterinary Epidemiology and Risk Analysis in UCD. Yesterday, he told me that this new research had identified four sources of the spread of TV and how much of a contribution each of them makes towards the problem. Uh, We know that really there's four different sources that are important. Three of them relate to cattle and one relates to wildlife. And in terms of cattle, the first one is what we would call hidden or residual infection. That is infection in animals that don't test positive. Uh, In Ireland, all animals have at least an annual skin test. And although this test is, is the best available, it's not perfect. And it doesn't always detect all infected cattle. How often does it work and not work? So the skin tests that we currently use, we would expect if you had 100 infected animals, we would inspect the the skin test to identify about 80 of them. So that's quite a few animals that are being left behind. So there will always be some that will slip through the net. Okay, so let's go back to the sources. Number one is hidden. What's two? So the second one is the movement of cattle. And basically, it's a little bit the same. It's really cattle, again, with hidden infections. So people don't realise these animals are infected, but it's cattle moving from farm to farm and taking infection with them. The third one is when uh, the bacteria that causes TB can be disseminated from from infected cattle into the environment. Uh, and these bacteria can survive for a period of time and provide a further source of infection. And then the final source of infection is uh, from wildlife. Now, in, in, in Ireland, that's primarily badgers, although certainly in County Wicklow, uh, deer are also involved. So they're essentially the four sources of infection that we, we, we have. And what's the contribution of each of them then? The contribution of these four sources is roughly similar. So about 15% roughly due to hidden infection, 15% due to moved cattle, 15% due to the environment, and 15% due to directly due to badgers, with the remaining 40% um, uh, essentially there's more than a single infection source and it's not possible to disentangle uh, which is 
responsible. But of those four sources, would it be correct to say, Simon, that cattle seem to be the main driver of the spread of this disease and not wildlife? That is essentially correct. That is essentially correct. But nonetheless, wildlife are very important. And and why I say this is that wildlife, uh, um, there's ongoing spillover. It's probably a relatively rare event, but there's ongoing spillover from wildlife to cattle. And that infection is then subsequently amplified by cattle within herds. So so although um, uh, the wildlife are playing a much lesser role in terms of triggering outbreaks, they can nonetheless cause substantial damage because that infection is subsequently amplified by cattle. So what then, Simon, are the policy implications of this? Farmers are very aware of all of the existing cattle controls, annual testing and herd restrictions. They're also very aware of the progressive national move from badger culling to, to vaccination. If we were to do all of existing cattle controls, plus national badger vaccination program, plus selective badger culling, that would not be sufficient to achieve eradication. Uh, Essentially, we need to simultaneously address multiple infection sources. Is eradication ever actually truly possible then, or do you think that we just have to do the very best that we can to minimise the number of outbreaks? In the last 50 years, there have been only two countries that have successfully eradicated TB. That's Australia and Japan. In the absence of wildlife, certainly it is possible to eradicate. Um, In the presence of wildlife, uh, it's much harder. It would be possible as long as we're able to uh, prevent that drift of infection from the wildlife source through to cattle. And, and that is the whole purpose and the whole uh, um, rationale for initially badger culling and now moving to badger vaccination. And how good is the vaccination for badgers? The use of vaccine nationally would be no worse than culling. In the individual badger, we're looking at about uh, uh, what's called a, an efficacy of 60%, obviously far from perfect, but Based on work that we've done, it, it should be sufficient. But, but for us to be successful, we really need to ensure that uh, all badgers are vaccinated. And that is really the very substantial logistical challenge. The denser the population, the greater the challenge, and the higher the amount of TB infection present in the badger population, the greater the challenge as well. So the approach that has been used uh, to this point has been firstly to only focus uh, vaccination in areas where there has already been a lot of culling um, and and where badger densities are lower and infection is lower as well. And if it's possible to do that and then introduce uh, vaccination, um, that that offers the best opportunity uh, to ensure that the vaccine is as uh, efficacious as possible. So we can certainly give badger vaccination our best shot possible. But this research is suggesting, Simon, that the main engine of the spread of this disease is actually hidden within the cattle themselves. 
What we need, obviously, is a better diagnostic test, one that doesn't just work four-fifths of the time, but works all the time. How far away are we from that? We don't have TESA on the horizon that solve this particular problem. But in saying this, Philip, in saying this, um, the, the problem of hidden infection was as difficult in Australia 30 years ago, for example, as it is in Ireland now. And there is a solution, a risk-based approach. It was central to the eradication programs in countries such as Australia and New Zealand. So rather than giving a black and white, you're clear, you're not clear, we would give a risk-based assessment based on a herd's exposure historically, how many times, how recently they've tested clear and so on. A risk-based approach, we essentially think in terms of a risk gradient. So a herd is on a, a, at a particular point on a continuum, somewhere between low risk and high risk. And, and if I could give you an example of this, uh, uh, Philip, so imagine a herd that has suffered a TB breakdown in which there are many test-positive animals. Uh, as, as your farmer listeners will know, uh, this herd will be restricted. It will undergo intensive testing until it achieves two full herd tests with no positive test results. Then the herd restriction will be lifted. And at the point of de-restriction, unfortunately, there is a good chance that hidden infection is still present. Uh, indeed, based on English work, we, we would estimate in these herds with uh, a number of reactors that perhaps 10 or 20% of herds at the point of de-restriction still have hidden infection. So basically this herd would be considered high risk at that particular point in time. Subsequently, it's going to be tested regularly. And uh, if it has a, a consecutive negative herd tests, we can basically become increasingly confident over time that infection is not present. So the herd is progressively moving from high risk to medium risk to low risk. And, and risk-based approaches are, are absolutely uh, are, are fundamental now to the national program. Simon Moore, Professor of Veterinary Epidemiology in UCD. 10 to 20% of herds have hidden infection at the time that they are given the official all clear. There's obviously quite a few implications for how cattle are bought and sold arising from this and indeed how much funding also there is available for vaccinating badgers, all of which arise from that piece of science. Very interesting advance in the sum of what is known because as the man says, you can't solve a problem until you measure it properly. Coming up after the break, Ella goes underground. Email countrywide at rte.ie Countrywide on RTE Radio 1 Next Wednesday night, Kilronan Castle in County Roscommon will host a night with the miners to raise funds for the local North West Stop Mental Health charity. The night will celebrate the lives of the miners who worked in the Arigna coal mine and lived in the surrounding villages like Drumkiran, Drumshambo, Ballyforan, Giva and Corrigine Row. 
The mines closed in 1990, but the surviving miners remember well the experience of working there. And Morris Cullen, himself a miner once upon a time, guided Ella McSweeney along the underground road to the coal seams. I started in uh, the late 60s and I worked up until just before the mines closed, a few years before the mines closed, so I worked 18 years. That's a long shift. <laughs> well, there was, uh, that was short compared to some of the men. Really? La- yeah, a lot of the men here worked 40 or 40 plus years in the mines. Describe, I mean, you can hear now, look, listen to that, that water. It sounds like it's hailing, but the water is coming through. We're in a tunnel. This is the main road, our straight road in pit terms. A straight road, and we're going down, down, down. How yeah. far down did the coal mine go? Well, during the buggy above, within two miles or so. When you're in at the face, you'd be about, uh, about 70, maybe 80 metres underground. It's cold, it's damp, it's wet. And this is where you spent... It's a dank environment, yeah. and the temperature here is, uh, when you go into the face, is about 10 degrees constant. The fact that you didn't get any light, I mean, how, how long was a shift down here before you get well, a break? The shift was eight hours. But a lot of us worked on piecework, you know, or price work. When you were finished, you could go home. Right, so they would yeah. just get their quantity of coal done and then they'd be done. Exactly. Yeah. They had a target to meet when they met it. Uh, they had their day's pay made and they went home and they'd done a little bit of farming then. And over here to the left, the water is flowing quite a lot. This is a ventilation shaft, A ventilation shaft, air shafts, we call them, in the pit. The thing that seems very distinctive about this coal mine is that the actual seam of coal, of coal was very, very thin, wasn't it? Yes, uh, it averaged about, uh, well, in uh, old-fashioned terms, 18 inches. So in international terms, it was a very small mine, but I suppose for this part of the world, at that time, when coal was the fuel that everyone wanted, especially during the war, it was very important. The coal from here, Rigna Mines, ran the whole country. They ran steam trains, power stations, sugar factories, cement factories, uh, schools, hospitals, everything. And if we go down here to the right, into a narrower tunnel, you can just see up there. I mean, you're talking about squeezing into a small space on your side yeah. with a pick, aren't you? Yeah, that's correct. A hand pick years ago. In my time, pneumatic picks. We had what they called peace, which was your lunch break. Yeah. They called it uh, 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 having your peace here. So I presume it was when the mine shut down, like to have the break. Would you have the was break quiet. in the mine? You wouldn't. Oh, you, oh no, you had your break uh, in, we'd say, the likes of this area here. So the men would come out from all the roads, sit down, and they'd have a chat. What would, they, what would you have for lunch? Well, no, years ago it was, uh, we'd say, brown bread or soda bread, you know, and if you were lucky, maybe a bit of cheese on it or something like that, a bit of egg, you know. There wasn't too many things going back years ago, you know. The, you wouldn't have ham every, every day or something like that, mm. you know. Was there an awareness about health? Probably there was in my day. We knew that the dust wasn't healthy for you, you know, mm. but we still worked in it. Uh, but years ago, they wouldn't have had any awareness. Yeah. You know, people, it was just something was done. I worked on the night shift or the evening shift for a good number of years here, and I was what they called a brusher. That was the man that uh, fired the shots here and cleaned them up afterwards. So there was a lot of rock dust. That was going into your lungs. Did you suffer? Uh, well, problems? I have 20% silicosis, yeah. You do? Yeah. 
So, uh, and what does that mean in terms yeah. of your lungs? Uh, well, it has an effect on you, I suppose, like emphysema. You know, if you were under stress coming up, walking, coming up hills or something like that, you'd find uh, tightness on your chest, you know. So, so I'm lucky, it's only 20%. Some of the men had a lot higher percentage, you know. Mm. Uh, a lot of them had 40 and 50%. Sadly, a lot of those men are dead and gone, mm. you know. What's your name? Uh, Gerald Cullen. Michael Early. Andy Gilrain. And you all worked in the mines, didn't you? Andy, right. uh, when did you finish? I finished in 1990 when the mines closed. How long were you here for? Six and a half years. Right. The I half is important sometimes. I bet it is. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a tight squeeze, to put it mildly, down there, isn't it? Mm, oh, it was, yeah. But um, we, we, we got through it in the end, like, you know. We got used to it as the years went by, like, and... So it's a bit difficult when we start our first, like, you know, when you leave school, you know, to get strength, like, you know, get your strength up, like, you know, for the mines. How old were you when 16. you started? I was 16 when I started. You know, right. just, uh, I left school early, so I, did. I didn't finish school. So. And what was your first job? I was a drawer. Pit pony, as you used to call them here. Bro. We, were the, we were the young drawers in so far. Gerald, what about yourself? When did you work here? I started in the 84, and I finished in... Or 70, 74, and finished in 84. And the first day going in, it was a daunting experience. In, in through an air shaft, it was very narrow. And I stalled for a few minutes, and there was an old guy coming behind me, and he said, Sonny, if I can get in, you'll get in. So I thought about it. Pat Gaffney, a big man, yeah, big yeah, broad shoulders, so in I went. And after that, it was... We, we, we forgot all about you it. You just got used to it. And as he said, it was all price work or piece work. Michael, what about yourself? How long well, were you Well, the lads have said it all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're around the same time now, four. doing the same jobs. And I didn't like school, came to the mines, and that's it, really. The closure of the mine in 1990, how did the community respond to that? Well, I suppose in a way, we thought it was the end of the world, but you're like a, we carried on. Mm. Why did you think it was the end of the world? Because we knew nothing else. Yeah, because we hadn't really all that much skills apart from mining, and we had very little education, so I think we had, our lot was bad. So what did you do? When I was the buildings double. Yeah, I went to local factories for 10 years before I come back working here in Arigna Fuels. In so I was, lucky, I was lucky I had work. You know, I didn't have to emigrate like all my brothers. Like, they all went off to England, so they did. So a lot of the lads would have emigrated, would they? Some did, some did, and some got jobs. You know, they worked locally in, you know, in industry. And, and, and what about yourself? You I, left I went to London. I went to London in 84. Yeah. When did you come back? I came back in 92. What made you come back? There was a recession in London. Mm-hmm. My grandfather mined in Sligo during the war, and he had to have a permit to sell coal, and he supplied various places. Mm-hmm. And my father was 40 years underground. Yeah, I'm the you last. You yeah. were lucky to get yeah. all their working career underground. My father spent four, all his working life underground, 47. And if it didn't close in 1990, he would have done at least another four or five, like, you know. He retired, like, at 60, 61. But a lot of miners did die young. They died in their early 60s. And what about yourself? Are you from generations of... Fourth. Life? Fourth generation? Yeah. So how far does that take you back? Just a long time, I'd say. Yeah, he's fairly old himself mm-hmm. now, he does yeah. take him back a bit. Yeah. Well, none of us getting any younger now. And we were the younger brigade then, so... Uh, so. There's, a, there's a poem there a, a man wrote that he worked down in the mines. And um, a verse of it goes like this. Year in, year out, my daily route was to Darnavogie pit. I proudly strode the long straight road as my little lamp I lit. With a pick and a wedge and a four-pound sledge to do the job I knew... For Bobby, it was my pay back in 1932. 
I'm here today in Yankee land, and faith to me is kind. But the miners of Arignus still torment my mind. In my dreams I see the hutches, and I see the haulage rope, and the miners with their shovels walking up the straight road. Some of the former miners in Arigna coal mine talking to Ella McSweeney. Listening to that, that's the best case that you could make for getting all of your energy from sun or wind. That event, Charlie McGettigan is going to be interviewing some of those miners. That event, Kilronan Castle, County Roscommon, doors open half seven Wednesday. Tickets, €10. Euro. Imagine farming in this weather. Imagine then vegetable farming in this weather. Now imagine vegetable farming in this weather and then having to feed those vegetables to cattle because your produce has been knocked off the shelves by cheaper imports from Spain. Which is something that Paul Hannafin doesn't have to imagine because that is exactly the situation that he and his cauliflowers in Phoenix and Kerry are in, as he explained to me yesterday. I grow a lot of winter cauliflower. The cauliflower I'm actually harvesting for the last two, two and a half weeks is in the ground 290, 310 days. So I've been minding that cauliflower for 300 days. I've kept the pigeons off it. I've kept everything perfect. The cauliflower is perfect. I have 14 fellas working with me. I'm harvesting the cauliflower, putting it into the fridge, and I cannot sell it because there's cheaper imports coming into Ireland at the moment. So basically all I'm doing is harvesting the cauliflower, putting it into the fridge. When it gets too old, feeding it to the cattle. And how did this end up happening? Cauliflower is coming from Spain between four and five euros a box. There's no way I can do that. The box alone would cost me one 21.30. I cannot produce it for that, so I have to dump it. Is it your impression that the supermarkets would be happy to sell only a Spanish product and not have any Irish cauliflower on the shelves at all? All I know is that I can't sell cauliflower. I'm paying 13, 14 workers and I'm dumping thousands of boxes of cauliflower. So if they thought anything of me, they would buy my cauliflower because I need money to pay my workers and everything every week. And they don't seem to really care about that. Right now in this conversation, you're blaming the supermarkets. I wonder, though, is it not more accurate, Paddy, to blame me, to blame everybody else like me in the cauliflower buying public who will look at a head of cauliflower and say, I don't really mind where it comes from. I'm going to go for the cheaper one. Well, that's a fair enough question. But if my cauliflower is not on the shelf, it can't be bought. But if it's on the shelf, and if people don't care whether it comes from Spain or comes from my farm, I should at least get the first opportunity of supplying it to the Irish customer from an Irish farm. I think you should be offered medals for going and harvesting anything in this weather at the moment. How many do you have out there in the field with you? Well, there was 13 of us and today now was a bad cold day. And we were in the field this morning at quarter past seven. And I said to the lads at three o'clock, you know, lads, is it ever worth it? Go away home. 
because I said what we cut today will be probably fed to the cattle again next Wednesday. Tell me about who's out there in the field with you. I have a fella from France. I have a fella from Latvia. I have a Nigerian fella. He's probably one of the nicest guys in the yard. He's worked with me four years. Dead sound fella, great worker. How do you stay warm on a day like today? I presume you can only do that by just keeping moving. Well, we have good oilskins and just stay working. Once you stay working, you'll stay warm. It must be pretty dispiriting, though, to be engaged in that kind of hard labour and know that ultimately there's not really much hope of this ending up on any Irish plate. Well, it's like this. The hard work is no problem, right? The wind, rain, like today now there was hailstones. But why everyone gets upset here in the yard is they transplant the plants with me. They cover them from boards with board netting. When they see it going harvesting into the fridge, everything is perfect. And when they see it being thrown to the cattle teeth, they say, this is, this is sad. How many cauliflower heads do you think you're looking for a home for? 3,000 crates in the fridge. There's probably more 4,000 crates in the fridge and there's uh, six and seven heads in each crate. Monday morning, Tuesday morning, I might have to dump 2,000 crates of that because I can only keep it in the fridge for so long. And if people were prepared to pay, I've just been doing a quick bit of maths in my head here, if they were prepared to pay over €1.25 for a head of cauliflower, would that pay your costs? Yes, I would be dead happy. If I got that here in the ad, I would be dead happy. For one twenty-five, you could feed four people cauliflower cheese with a single head of cauliflower. That's as good value a meal as you're going to get. Yeah, and it's perfect. The, like the, the head of cauliflower is perfect and the cattle are feeding it, eating it. That's sad. Have you a remedy? Have you a solution to what it is that we do here? Whatever we grow in Ireland when it comes to veg farmers, whether it's whatever the crop is, it should be used before any imports. Like if we have Brussels sprouts, they should all be used up first before anything is imported. If we have cabbage, it should all be used up before they go to Spain first. The same with the strawberries and, you know. Mm. So like we're not kind of, um, we're not here for a, the short journey, like we, it is our living, you know. At least if you had, if you were a garage owner, if you had twenty motor cars in the forecourt, they'll stay there today and they'll stay tomorrow and they'll stay for twelve months. But cauliflower and all these veggies, we have to get rid of them straight away. We've only, like, if I have a cauliflower today, I like to bring it into the fridge, cool it, and then leave it there for twenty-four hours, and then I, I expect to be able to sell that. I don't want to be, I don't want to be paying talking fellas to feed the to sort in front of the cattle. This almost sounds perverse asking you this question, Potty, but do the cattle like it? Do they appreciate it? Well, like the the French guy said to me here, the French worker, he said to me, he said, Potty, you should sell them as a vegetarian cattle because they're getting so much of it. <laughs> It's not really a laughing matter, though, is it? 4,000 crates of cauliflower, if anybody can find a good home for them. Paul G. Hannafin in Phoenix in Kerry is your man.
It's shot in the Gaelic. Time to use our cupola fuckle and perhaps even learn a cupola more. Hannah Quinn Mulligan loves the Irish words that describe life on the farm and the way some of these words have become woven into everyday life beyond the farm gate. Now is the season of new life on the farm. Just as it was almost 6,000 years ago when some of the first farmers settled here in the cage fields of Mayo. Eagerly awaiting, just as we do now on our little farm in Limerick, for the crew beanie, or little hooves of the calf to emerge. The language of our forebears reflects a warmth and respect for our farming ways. Tashit fitafuta lenikela, marhampla, gnusakt. It's a soft, tender call of a cow to her calf to encourage it to drink. Indeed, cows play a focal point in the Irish language. The bow, or humble cow, inspires the word boher, or road. Because roads really were only motorways in ancient Ireland to move cattle from one place to another. And cattle, of course, were the currency of the day. If you were out on the boher, you could be egbohan, which meant you were either cattle driving or, if you had a covetous neighbour, it meant they could be cattle raiding. On a more sombre note, egdullar and moher fada, or to take the last long road, was a phrase which meant to die. Yet for me, I couldn't imagine a nicer way to let go of life in my old age than to think I was walking down a sunny road with my favourite cow, her firm hooves plodding forward while my fingers scratch the warm, wiry hair on her neck. Hopefully, by that time, we'll all be called Bohacha, which was the highest of compliments because it means you are rich or wealthy in cattle. Now, of course, there are farmers milking cows this morning, waiting for the last few schnugga, or drops of milk, who feel very far from wealthy. With the rain pouring down, they could be following their cows out for a few hours to graze in wet fields. And the cows will leave behind what they've always left behind for thousands of years, a plabon, which is a hole hollowed out by a beast's foot and filled with rain. For fear of being accused of some personal cow bias, I should also mention my least favourite farmyard animal. The sheep. Quera is the Irish for sheep. Although I like to think that our ancestors held a similarly dim view of them to me because the Irish for a flock of sheep is queriacht. But it could also mean loud abuse. For example, Aigdu queriachta a hertragwina means shouting loud abuse at someone, which is, actually, what people tend to be doing when they're attempting to gather sheep. And for the rest of the time, if you're walking through your farmyard this morning, some of you might hear a shark gwyr, or broody hen, bossily clucking in the chicken coop. But be careful where you use that phrase when you step into the kitchen later on, because a chiarc gwer can also mean a fussy woman. If you chose the wrong moment to do something in life, someone might even say to you, an chiarc a yeal law na Literally, sold the hen on a rainy day. 
And it's a phrase that actually makes perfect sense when you think about that poor wet hen with her bedraggled feathers looking far from her personal best. Then there is the eternal foe of the farmyard fowl on Chinook with his glossy russet coat and bushy tail, snatching hens, ducks and geese as the opportunity arises. To be a shunna means that you are mocking or ridiculing someone, which is often how it feels when the number of ducks or hens in your yard becomes fewer and fewer. There is another age-old debate across farmyards in the country about whether a fork is indeed called a fork, a grape or a sprung. Now, despite extensive research, our ancestors didn't seem to have the same obsession with this one implement and it's probably because they were too busy with plenty of other implements for harvesting. A shiogon was a haystack, a sugon was a hay rope, a farmer was a rush used to stabilise a haystack and farmerie were multiple rushes to stabilise haystacks. See, back then nothing went to waste, not even rushes. A pardog was a basket put on a donkey's back to carry things and even here in the edges of the Golden Vale in Limerick I've heard of a schlaun, a spade specifically made for cutting turf. Before we think of warm summer harvests and long days of turf cutting, it's important to remember the joy of new life across the land. Anish Chaktanarik. Though it doesn't really feel like it on a day like today. I've been using that phrase, mad as a wet hen, for years and only today. Thank you very much, Hannah Quinn Mulligan, have I found out what its origins are. Um, more information on local events for Shachtan Gaelga, peg.ie. Uh, plenty of texts sympathising with Podgy Hannafin's situation about the cauliflower. If Irish veg was clearly marked in supermarkets, I would buy it. What happened to buy Irish? Somebody else says, I'm searching everywhere to buy Irish grown cauliflower. This is no vegetable. There is no vegetable nationality identification on the shelves. Please let me know where your cauliflower can be purchased. Phoenix County Kerry is the unfortunate answer to that question. Um, I got my Ballyforans in South Ross Common mixed up with my Ballyfornans in North Ross Common. Good morning to both and apologies to both. Uh, and it is, of course, Ballyfarnan in the mining heartland near Arigna that I meant to mention. The countrywide team in the radio mines for you this week. Amandine Passo-Divine loaded 16 tonnes. Liam Mullen got deeper in debt. Eileen Heron pleaded with St Peter not to take us all yet. Sinead Mooney will be on the way after the news at nine o'clock with a playback. But from all of us on Countrywide until the same time next week, have a great weekend. Countrywide on RTE Radio 1. Listen back on the RTE Radio Player.